Hey, if you listen to this podcast week after week, then you will absolutely love my books. There's Travel Light, which basically gives you all of the steps for following your heart. And then there's Knowing Where to Look, which is full of inspirational stories and anecdotes that will help you shift your perspective in the most inspiring way. And for those of you who can't seem to crack the meditation code, grab a copy of Bliss More, How to Succeed in Meditation Without Really Trying, and your meditation practice will never be the same. All of those books are available on Amazon, as well as everywhere else books are sold. That's Travel Light, Knowing Where to Look, and Bliss More. All right, back to the show. Two thousand sixteen, on paper, everything was great. You googled my name; I was doing well in life. I had succeeded. But on paper, doesn't tell the whole story. I like to remind people that Google never tells the whole story. And due to some a lot of stress, anxiety, deep dissatisfaction, I'd become a secret cigarette smoker. And I, as you mentioned, I would find myself in alleys—not just in LA, but across the country when I was traveling, smoking cigarettes. But when I was home in LA smoking cigarettes, I wore this bright green gardening glove because my wife didn't know that I smoked and I didn't want her to smell it. And one day when I was smoking a a cigarette in Santa Monica, in an alley, (laughs) in an alley, the homeless man comes up, asked to borrow a couple of cigarettes. I'm like, absolutely. Looked like dude that's had many other better days. And we started talking, you know, like like smokers do. And at some point he asked me about the green glove. I tell him I wear it because my wife doesn't know that I smoke and I don't want her to smell it. Like he looks at me like I committed a crime. Like I did something wrong and he says something I'll never forget. He says, hey, man, you got to figure that shit out. Here is a man that I perceive to be homeless who has seen better days telling me who on the Internet is successful that I got to figure my shit out. Welcome back to At the End of the Tunnel. It's Light Watkins, and I've got another story behind the story of a changemaker who was hungry, creative, and innovative in his younger years, but then he found himself very much living on autopilot once he got into his late 30s and 40s, and it all came to a head when he found himself hiding in alleys in Santa Monica, California, smoking cigarettes while wearing a green gardening glove so his wife wouldn't find out. His name is Antonio Neves, and Antonio is a writer, a prolific speaker, and an executive coach, and he's also a very dear friend of mine. And while Antonio's story isn't overly dramatic, I feel that a lot of us, especially those of us in our late 30s and 40s and 50s, are going to be able to relate to that feeling of having our stuff together on paper, but then underneath the surface, there's there's unhappiness, there's stress, there's some anxiety, and many areas of life seem to be falling apart. Well, this was Antonio's experience, and he ended up writing a book called Stop Living on Autopilot, Take Responsibility for Your Life, and Rediscover a Bolder, Happier You, which is what Antonio eventually decided to do, not by employing a hack or some overnight miracle fix, but by implementing several tools such as asking better questions, asking more honest questions about how he was showing up in his marriage, in his career, and in his relationship with his kids. And in that way, he started repairing a lot of the more broken areas of his life, such as his diet and his relationship with drinking and his exercise routines and his lack of commitment and contribution to society, etc. Again, a lot of these interviews, they tend to be these really dramatic stories of loss and gain, but this is more subtle. And in a way, I feel like it's more relatable because... A lot of us, myself included, have felt like we're a little too comfortable in certain areas of our life, 
And at some point, we start going into autopilot, which means we stop playing to win. And somewhere along the line, we start playing not to lose. Does that sound familiar? So I'm excited to introduce you guys to Antonio and for us to really take in some of these experiences that he's had and some of the lessons that he's learned along the way. And what I really loved about this conversation is how pretty much everything we talk about can be applicable to anyone's life right away. So even if you get just one or two of takeaways that resonate, it'll be something that you can do right now and it'll have an immediate positive impact in your life. Without further ado, I'm honored to introduce you to my dear friend, author, Antonio Neves. Antonio, welcome to the podcast, man. So exciting to have you on here. Finally, I've been wanting to have you for a while, and now you have this uh, this book that just came out, so it's perfect time for, for both of us. As usual, I like to start these conversations off talking about childhood, and so the kickoff question Thinking back to little Antonio in Michigan, growing up in Michigan, not far from NASCAR Speedway, what was your favorite toy or activity? Oh, man, my favorite activity growing up was was any type of sports. Like sports in many ways were my savior, were my parent, were just somewhere I could be free and not think a lot. So as a kid, like year round, I was all about, you know, going from football to basketball to baseball to track and field. I wasn't that kid that was into any specific like types of characters like Star Wars, Star, Star Wars action figures or GI Joe or specific cartoons. Those weren't my jam. I was more of a, give me a football, give me a basketball, uh, give me some type of sport to play. I mean, at some point Nintendo, you know, showed up and I can still remember like blowing into the games to get it to work, but I've never been a video game person or a toy person. I've always been more in, in, enmeshed in, I guess, life experiences and sports were, were my jam from super early on. Were you playing organized sports or was this neighborhood with your friends? It was both. It was a combination of like, you know, in this apartment complex that we lived in, like we, we did the baseball, we did the football, we did basketball, we did tennis, but then that transition to organized sports as well. So it, it was both. Like, I can't think of a time in my childhood where sports didn't it didn't reign supreme. And not even from the perspective of, oh, I want to be a professional athlete one day. It's just what you did, just what I did as, as, as the youngest kid. On the playground, there are archetypes. And I know for myself, I was the kid who was picked last. I was afraid of the ball. I was uncoordinated. What was your archetype in the sports arena? There were a couple of, I guess, phases of the archetype. Uh, the early archetype when I was younger, I have an older brother who's three years older than me who was pretty decent at sports. When he was around in my childhood, I was kind of the youngest one, the one that got picked last. And, you know, folks didn't pay too much attention to me because my brother was out there on the court kind of doing his thing. And those were kind of, for me, scary moments when I played, especially when I was on his team because to me, three years younger, I didn't want to mess up. Yeah, my, my brother and I kind of had a contentious relationship growing up. But then as I got older, things changed because I became a, an exceptionally good athlete in a variety of sports. I was the one that got picked or I was the one at times doing most of the picking. But there was a time, I guess, when my brother was around, folks weren't paying attention too much. If you could name one thing that you got out of sports, what would you say that was? Confidence. Confidence, first and foremost, it gave me like a sense of achievement that I could win at something structure real talk like I, I thrive in structure to this day 
gave me a sense of structure, having somewhere to be in many ways. I think it provided me like with a type of, of parent, that coach, if you will, in organized sports. We may get into this, but, you know, my upbringing was had a decent amount of instability. And if there's anything I could always count on, it was the structure of sports and that and what it provided. That was actually my next question. Talk a little bit about your upbringing, your childhood, your family dynamic. What was how was all that for you? Yeah, well, my parents divorced when I was around six, seven years old. And once they got divorced, you know, before I graduated from high school, you know, I moved over 15 different times before I graduated from high school to give you an idea of what was going on between my mom and dad are a total of six different divorces. My mom has been divorced three times. My, my father's been divorced three times. You know, there are times in my childhood, even living briefly had some spells living in a shelter for battered and abused women and children. And so as a kid growing up, my mom, you know, she worked, she was raising three kids primarily by herself. Most of the time when, when I, when we didn't have a stepfather. So we were left to our own vices you know, I had a brother who was three years older than me and a sister who was six years older than me. And so, again, the sports, that provided the structure for me that wasn't there at home. I kind of had to learn to, to fend for myself early on. Hey there, really quickly. Have you wanted to find your purpose or be more grateful or start a daily meditation practice, but you're not quite sure where to begin? Well, if inner work is like a drop of water, thehappinessinsiders.com is like your ocean. That's my online community where you can learn real-world techniques for cultivating more fulfillment from the inside out. So whether it's learning how to manifest abundance or access your potential or overcome fear or even just start walking every day, I've got a blueprint for you, which means you no longer have to use any more shoddy guesswork. And you don't have to use the lone wolf approach to improving yourself. For a small accountability fee, you'll get community, you'll get accountability directly from me, and you'll get comprehensive instructions for getting your meditation practice off the ground. And for my podcast listeners, you'll receive 30% off of the all-access pass if you go to thehappinessinsiders.com right now and use the promo code HAPPY. Again, thehappinessinsiders.com. Enter the promo code HAPPY and you'll get 30% off on a yearly all-access pass, which gives you access to dozens of inner work challenges and masterclasses, such as my 108-day meditation challenge, which has an 80% completion rate. Plus, you get to join me live for weekly meditations on Zoom and much, much more. That's thehappinessinsiders.com. The code is HAPPY. All right, back to the episode. Did you feel like all kids were going through that or did you know that something was really off when you were in the shelters and whatnot? Yeah. And just to be clear, the shelter was just a brief period of time. It wasn't like, you know, a year stint or six months stint or anything like that. In the apartment complex where, I, where we lived throughout my childhood, there was a lot of subsidized housing. So I think there are a lot of single parents and, and kids that and their dads weren't there. So it wasn't super abnormal. However, I always had a glimpse of the other side of town of the people that mom and dad lived in the same house and they had a garage and they had a house and not an apartment. And I can still remember, man, 
feeling weird when I'd go over people's homes when they sat around the dinner table, like, what y'all doing? Y'all actually going to sit here and talk to each other and talk and just feeling that's like not knowing, no, not knowing what to do with your hands. <laughs> I was like, this is weird. The family is together. You guys are communicating like everything is regular. We don't talk at home. When we get dinner, it's fast food. and We're sitting in front of the, the TV. So it was there in my, in my hood where we lived. It was normal. But when I saw the other side of town, I knew that there was something else out there. What did you want to be when you grew up? I think early on athlete, I love baseball. So, you know, watching WGN Chicago Cubs games, that's a channel we got in Michigan that I love to watch. So baseball was huge for me. I was a big Andre Dawson fan, big Chicago Cubs fan. I remember even as a kid though, not knowing what was what, no one in my family, you know, had college degrees or, or went to college. I didn't know that was a venue at that age. I remember meeting somebody that my mom dated at one point who was an electrical engineer. And he drove a decent car and he had a crib, like a house with a garage and all that. So I was like, I'm going to be an electrical engineer because it can provide you with some stuff. Didn't know what electrical engineer did by no means, but I didn't have those types of goals, man. Like I didn't know certain fields existed like marketing where I got my undergraduate degree in. Everyone around me worked in the blue collar field. My father was blue collar, worked in factories his whole life. My mom was an administrative assistant for the same organization for you know, over 30 plus years. So in my town, I didn't know a lot of people in my family or immediate circle that had white collar jobs or those professional degrees. So I knew I wanted to do something to stretch myself, but I didn't say I want to be do X, Y, or Z. Would you say you had a pretty healthy state of mind at that time in your life as a teenager? Grade school, definitely not. I think I was going through a really hard time with my parents' divorce and I think experiencing a, a good amount of emotional abandonment and physical abandonment that that took place when you didn't always know when mom was going to to come home or if she's going to come home that night again having to figure out how to fend for yourself those moments when you go to school and you don't have lunch money and you got to figure out how to get that lunch i grew in confidence if you will as i got older primarily due to sports and being able to succeed in that capacity but i was super super insecure so i i'm that guy that had two fronts growing up like I'm super shy. I'm an introvert naturally, which people would know this day based on the work that I do, but I'm, I'm an introvert and, I, and I'm quiet. And I'm the kind of person that never wanted attention on me light. Like, so if I went to a new situation as a kid, middle school, early on, I found a way to get you to talk all about you. I'd find a way to make it all about you. And you would never get to ask about me, my experiences, my upbringing, et cetera. So I, I wouldn't say my mental health was horrible. Like I never went to therapy. I didn't know that therapy even existed back then, but there, there were definitely some struggles that, that presented themselves. How did you get the lunch if you didn't have any money for it? Oh man, you talk to friends, you get creative. Sometimes maybe walk out of the line without them knowing, even though they kind of know the obvious, Hey, I forgot money. Can I get you back tomorrow? Those types of things. I'm sure there are a few times I just decided not to eat and just like, I'm not hungry today, but I was always pretty resourceful. Like I always know that there's another exit that no one else knows about. Like if my upbringing, if it taught me anything was to be super aware of my surroundings. Like to this day, I'm hyper aware. Like I know where everything is in a room. I know who is in a room. I know how to exit, which has been a gift in many ways, especially in the work that I do as a coach, uh, work that I've done as a journalist being super aware, but it can be a detriment as well because it can, it's like an app running, <laughs> an app running at all times. You're a parent now of twins. I'm curious, thinking back to your upbringing, 
were there any sayings or philosophies that your mom and or dad would would repeat over and over that you still remember today? I can't say there is anything specific that I can remember, like any type of wisdom that they instilled in us. You know, my parents got divorced when I was young. I'd see my dad on the weekends here and there and on the holidays, that type of thing. There weren't like, oh, this is a this is a Nev's axiom that we we must follow. But something that comes into mind is being at a basketball game once. I probably was in fifth or sixth grade. And my dad would come to the games every now and then. And I remember fouling somebody in the basketball game and the whistle went off. And all I heard my dad say was, Tony, if you're going to foul somebody, foul them. Like basically say, if you're going to hit them, if you're going to foul them, hurt them, like earn it. Mm -hmm. And so that's always kind of stuck with me. Like if you're going to do it, do it. Like there was no kind of half-assing with my dad, El Nev, super blue collar dude, never saw a fight he didn't want to get into. Like, that's just how he rolled. I can even think back to one time when I was a kid, I just forgot about this. Someone stole my shoes at school when I was in grade school. I came home and I was crying and my dad was like, what's going on? I was like, oh, somebody took my shoes or whatever. And my dad was physical and I was afraid of what was going to happen. But interestingly enough, I didn't get it. My older brother got it, who mm. was three years older than me. He's like, you take care of family. Why didn't you take care of your brother? So that was always a lesson for me as well, even though it wasn't cool, you know, for I don't think for a father to, to use their hands on a kid in the way that my dad did at times, that his, he didn't come at me. He said to my big brother, yo, why didn't you protect your brother? What happened to that person who took your shoes? Did you guys go in and teach him a lesson? No idea. All I can recall is my dad always saying, you take care of family. And even my dad was the kind of dude that if something happened in the neighborhood with the kids, he was, he was that parent like, all right, let's go over the house. And he'd like, you know, you you'd go out there, like bring them outside. Y'all can fight right now. Like he was that kind of dad that let's handle this. Like you, you use your hands to, to finish things. And like, he, he's not the person that break up a fight either. If you were scrapping outside, He'd look out the window, see how it's going. But he wasn't, you know, parents nowadays that just run and jump in and, you know, protect their kids. Probably the way that they should. Al Neves was a bit old school. He was born in 1937 in New Bedford, Massachusetts to, to immigrants, you know, so it was a different story for him. Did you get into a lot of fights? I got in a lot of fights with my brother, but I did not get in a lot of fights at school. I was really good light at avoiding fights. Mm -hmm. I was really good at using my, my words of humor, making people laugh. Like the last thing I wanted to do was fight because my brother and I fought a lot at home and I lost pretty much all those fights. He was three years older than me uh, and bigger than me. And at school, I just was, for some reason, I was always able, and even to this day, I'm really good at avoiding confrontation. Mm -hmm. uh, even I think times when I lived in New York City over the years, it's inevitable that you're on the subway at some point, some dude just wants to fight for whatever reason, bumps into you on the train or something like that. I've always been really good at avoiding those situations, talking someone down, making them laugh, or even anticipating problems. Like, I'm, I'm sure you're this way as well. Again, I mentioned earlier, I'm super hyper aware. Like, I'm really good at knowing when to cross the street. Mm. Like, you know, you can look ahead, you can see what's happening. Like, ah, something's going on on there, up there. Let me cross the street. We've all been to parties before. And I'm like, you know, something's off at this party. Let me bounce. And you leave the party, then somebody gets shot. I'm really have this keen awareness of when to bounce. 
speaking of crossing the street, well, what about the racism conversation? Was that something that you guys talked about as a family or you and your dad on the weekends? Did anyone try to prepare you for being in white America or any of that kind of stuff? We didn't have a lot of those conversations. And I think primarily because the dynamic in my household was pretty unique as it comes to race. First and foremost, and I didn't know this until I got much older, light. I didn't know that my mother was mixed race, that she was black and white. I always thought that my mom was straight up just African-American. And it wasn't until I got older that I found out who I thought was my grandfather on my mother's side was not my grandfather. If I would have looked at some family photos of her and her brothers, it would have made complete sense because she's the only one that has my complexion or is much lighter than all the other kids. But, you know, I wasn't smart enough. But what was unique in my household light is that my father is Cape Verdean. And I don't know if you know about Cape Verdean culture. The Cape Verde Islands are off the northwest coast of Africa, west of Senegal. It was colonized by Portugal. So it has like an African and Portuguese population. Mm -hmm. And when my grandparents immigrated to the United States in the 1920s from Cabo Verde, from Cabo Verde, with so much that was going on in the United States as it related to race, they were confused from what the stories I hear because they were being told they were black and they were like, no, we're Cape Verdean. Like, but they re- they quickly realized based on their complexion that my, my grandfather had a darker complexion. My grandmother had a lighter complexion. They quickly realized it didn't matter what you think you are. The society in this society, you are, you are black. So my father, in many ways, even though he identified as black, he also, he first identified with being Cape Verdean, which is a nationality, not a race. There are many books written on the subject. It's a really complex conversation around this that I'm still like, I don't understand completely because I wasn't raised with my family in Massachusetts, but were there any direct conversations about race? No. I mean, I always knew that in, in football as I got over older when we, when we played the, the, the team from the country that, you know, it was primarily all white and we had a diverse high school that we may hear the N word and different things here and there. We hear those words in town. If you wanted to date a, a white girl that she says she couldn't because you're black, that's when things came to be real. But there weren't those conversations at home. You ended up going to Western Michigan University. Was that on an athletic scholarship? I ended up earning an athletic scholarship at Western Michigan University after my first two years being on the track and field team. It literally light was one of the schools that I went on a random college visit to. And I think I only applied to a couple of schools. I applied to Western Michigan. I applied to Michigan State. I believe I got into both of those schools. Uh, And again, I didn't really even realize when I was in high school that I could apply to schools in other parts of the country. I didn't know I could go to school in a different state, that there are things called scholarships and ways that you can actually make this happen. Kalamazoo, Michigan was about an hour and a half from where I was raised. I got accepted. The dollars and cents looked right from what my mom was saying. And that's where I ended up in Kalamazoo, Michigan. And I got to say, it ended up being probably the best place for me to, to spread my wings. My hunch is that Michigan State was probably a little bit too big for me as I was stretching my wings from, from Jackson, Michigan. But Kalamazoo was, it was a great place to land. Is that where you walked onto the track team? Yeah, I walked on the track team. First two years, I was a, what they call a walk-on, no scholarship. And after two years of being on the team, I finally earned a big scholarship, about $500 a semester, <laughs> which, which, paid, uh, which paid for books. Just to be clear, I had some offers from other institutions when I was in high school. My senior year of high school, I had a really bad 
pulled a hamstring muscle that didn't allow me to compete most of my senior year in track and field after a stellar junior year. And a lot of the interests, a lot of the offers, things that were coming in when I didn't compete my senior year, a lot of those things disappeared and went away. You obviously had to have a pretty decent work ethic, I imagine, to make the track team. I think I had a good, it wasn't exceptional. I mean, when I compared myself to the people on the team who ended up becoming, you know, who were all Americans, it was not nearly the same. But I still remember my first day at track practice at Canely Field. (laughs) I remember this day and we were doing a workout and I was a freshman. And after that workout, after getting my butt kicked, there was this moment when I was just like, oh, I'm not going to the Olympics. Like, it just hit me. Like, I'm not good enough. <laughs> I'm not good enough to go to the Olympics. Now, that didn't mean I couldn't compete at Western Michigan. That I couldn't compete in the Mid-American Conference, where I went on to become an all-conference triple jumper. I mean, I didn't become a national champion or even compete at the national championships. But there was a moment early on in my freshman year, I realized I can compete, but I'm not going to be the upper echelon, the creme de la creme by no means. Was that because you looked around at the talent level of all of your, your teammates? Yeah, I looked around. And I'm like, I'm in Kalamazoo in this, and, I, and I'm, <laughs> I'm at Western Michigan University. I'm not, I'm not at top programs like the University of Tennessee or the University of Arkansas, and I'm getting my butt whooped here. So if I'm getting mm-hmm. my butt whooped here, butt whooped here is probably not going to happen on a, on a national scale. But it was still a transformative experience for me too. I didn't, you know, I didn't pledge a, a fraternity or anything in college, but it was one of those things that that was my fraternity in many ways. And it, and it taught me a lot having to compete. And again, I mentioned I'm good at structure. I needed that structure of the classes, the track practice, the weight room, the travel. I thrive in structure and being very busy. You told a story in the book that you would go on to write many, many years later, Stop Living on Autopilot, about your track coach pulling you to the side to give you a little chat about your effort or lack thereof. Can you talk about that story? Yeah. Coach Shaw, Coach Jack Shaw, one of those people that, you know, I think angels show up in our life that had a big influence on me, really, really tough on me and tough on the team. And I'm glad he was tough on us. But I said, as I said earlier, I was doing horrible two years into being on the team. And he came up to me one day after track practice and told me the obvious that you're doing horrible. Like he was like straight up like that, like you're doing horrible. And I knew I was doing horrible. And he said, you know, in two years of being on this team, you haven't placed first in anything. I think the only thing I placed first in was like in line at McDonald's after our track and field meets. But that was that moment when he was like, but I don't know if you know this, but we have two All-Americans on our team. And he pointed to them. One light would go on to compete in the Olympics. Another one would go on to compete in multiple world championships. And he said, in two years that you've been on this team, not once have I seen you spend any time with them. In two years. And Coach Shaw was absolutely right because those All-Americans, those dudes, they got up earlier than I did. They worked harder than I did. They ate better than I did. They didn't go to the parties and gatherings that, that I did. Uh, they were committed to their craft, to the work that they were doing in a whole other level than I was. And that moment right there just did taught me something. One, I, he could have cut me from the team, frankly, like after how I was performing the first two years, but he didn't do so. And one, I appreciated him being willing to have that conversation with me prior to cutting me, but it gave me something to look at, something to aspire to, something to show me like this is how it's supposed to to be done. And, you know, that's when I went on to eventually earn that partial scholarship, observing them, seeing how they, they showed up to this day. I can't front. There's a side of me that's like, I know I didn't give my all. I knew there was more in the tank to give. And it breaks my heart because I really wonder how far I could have jumped, how much 
I could have improved if I, if I gave more, whether that's true or not, I don't know, but there's a side of me that feels like I didn't leave it all on the field. As they say, did you start spending more time with the all Americans? Wouldn't say I spent more time with them, but I observed what they were doing and how they showed up and how they showed up in the weight room, how they showed up just as I think as adults, as men, when I was still learning what it meant to be a man, we, one was a decathlete, one was a, a shot putter. So we were like in whole different realms. So our practices didn't have us doing the same things and times, but all I had to do observe is how they showed up every single day. They didn't have time for BS was all that, that I needed to see. And you later on formulated this ideology about the thieves of ambition and the allies of, of glory. Can you just talk about that a little bit? Yeah, something I neglected to point out was when my coach, when Coach Shaw pointed out these two All-Americans, he also pointed over to the high jump mat that day. And if you've ever competed in track and field, I don't care if it's middle school or high school or college, you know, there's always people laying back on the high jump mat, having a good time. It's essentially the club. And he pointed out that you're hanging out with those guys as if they were committing crimes. So this ideology I've created was like they're thieves. And allies. Thieves are people that don't encourage you, that don't inspire you, that don't challenge you, that don't push you, that don't hold you accountable to be the absolute best version of yourself. They're the people that when you spend time with them, they wear you out. They're the people that always have some type of drama going on in their lives. You call them and the first thing they tell you is like, you're not going to believe what just happened to me. Like right now, I'm sure someone listening to this can identify who the thieves are in their life. And these aren't necessarily bad people. These aren't folks committing crimes. They're just not, you know, the folks, uh, those, those allies and allies are people that do encourage you, that do inspire you, that do challenge you and push you and most importantly, hold you accountable to be the best version of yourself. You know, when you spend time with these folks, you don't lose energy, you get energy. They don't have drama going on in their lives. They have great things going on in their lives. And as you know, like, I mean, sometimes spending time with these types of folks, these allies, it can be challenging primarily because they are going to hold you accountable. They are going to push you. They are going to make you uncomfortable. And then early on, I was unwilling to feel any of those things. Nowadays, I realize that that's required. Like it's necessary for growth, even though I feel like a lot of society nowadays is, is running away from that, what I, what I call good friction. So you knew you weren't going to the Olympics. What did you envision yourself becoming post-college? Yeah, I knew I wasn't going to the Olympics, but after my freshman year of college, I got a job in my factory, in the factory in my hometown back in Jackson. I realized I didn't want to do that again because I thought I was going to make some good money. But then things opened up for me. After my sophomore year of high school, of college, I got an internship. Like, didn't know what an internship was my freshman year. I got an internship in, in Detroit with Kraft Foods. And for me at the time, Detroit was it, you know, this is the 1990s, bad boy musical. I mean, like, come, I mean, Detroit was it. I, I just loved it. This is before the city still had over a million people in it. Nowadays, it has less than 700,000. Like Detroit was it. So that gave me some confidence. Like, oh, there, there's this is the kind of profession I can have for myself. I can be a, a professional. And, and prior to that, just, you know, I'd seen the movie Boomerang with Eddie Murphy. If you remember that, Boomerang was the first time I heard about this field called marketing that I, in advertising that I chose to work in. I was like, oh, okay, that opened up some windows for me that I saw a black man as a professional. So after that sophomore year internship in Detroit, I ended up getting an internship after my junior year in Florida with Walt Disney World. So all of a sudden I went from a state level to a national level and meeting people from all across the globe. And I was like, oh, so not only can I do this in Michigan, Indiana, or Illinois, I can have some opportunities to actually possibly work out of state and do something else. 
And that led to me studying abroad in Spain, in Sevilla, where I started getting this international perspective. A big part of that is I had a, uh, a German girlfriend at the time. And I was like, yo, let me find, <laughs> let me find my way over to Europe so I can spend more time there. So there was this amazing progression factory in my hometown internship in Detroit, just an hour away from my hometown, Orlando, Florida. Oh, this is getting interesting. The next thing you know, finding myself in Spain. I mean, so that that was an interesting trajectory that showed me there were a lot of avenues to explore. So which, where did you go after college? After I got back from studying abroad, I saved a few credits. So I can, I studied abroad after I technically graduated, I saved some credits. I ended up getting a job in, in South Florida, in the Fort Lauderdale area, with Kraft Foods. I'd kept those relationships open. And I, just to be clear, I got this job. I know I've never shared this. I specifically tried to get this job in South Florida because that German girlfriend that I told you about worked for a cruise line, a Norwegian cruise line. And that's where she was based in South Florida, in Miami. So I wanted to be close to her. And I ended up moving down there. And I was in South Florida for about a year. You're in Hollywood, right? Is that where you worked in the cheese, selling yeah, cheese? I, I was a sales representative rocking a, a dope, probably 19, 1999 Ford Taurus, responsible for 25 Winn-Dixie grocery stores, slanging cheese. Probably to this day, the reason why I don't have a standard nine to five is because that first job out of college, I didn't have to go to an office every single day. Mm-hmm. My office was my home. It was the car and it was different stores that I went to. And yeah, I was responsible for 25 Winn-Dixie grocery stores that... Oh man, from a communication perspective, talking about learning how to relate to communicate with people. Like when you have to learn how to communicate with a manager who is in a very affluent area and the products that they want, but then you have to learn how to communicate with a, a manager in a total, the exact opposite neighborhood and the products that sell in that neighborhood and how to connect with these people. That year I learned so much. What's the secret to selling cheese or to communicating with these various people? If you could narrow it down to like one or two things. Well, first and foremost, I was fortunate that I worked for Kraft and they needed to have these products in the store, first of all. Second, at that time, one of the key factors was figuring out who I needed to give Miami Dolphins tickets to, (laughs) to incentivize them a little bit. But most importantly, I came in early on telling them about everything that I could do for them without Mm. asking any questions, not for listening. And thank goodness, a lot of managers, you know, they were smart. Like, hey, I know you're a young man. Let me tell you a few things. You need to listen to us and we'll tell you what we need and how you can help us instead of you telling us. So I learned, that's when I learned too, when the early lessons of being, sh- of shutting up. Had you read any Dale Carnegie or anything? What, what kind of operating philosophy were you? The operating philosophy that I was using is that my, my, my German girlfriend lives in South Florida. I had no interest. I had no interest in sales, man. I, I, I was just in love at the time. Thank goodness they provided training and those types of things. But have you ever experienced something like you're just naturally good at something sometimes? Like you, you, you can get by on a natural skill set. I was fortunate that at least early on in the sales game, it was kind of natural to me. And I had a mentor down there and other sales representatives that would, would help me. And I was actually pretty decent at it. And that was one of those early moments like I learned a powerful lesson. And that is just because you're good at something doesn't mean that you're supposed to be doing it. I mean, I probably today could have, I could have stayed in that company and probably succeeded in many ways, but for a variety of reasons, I ended up leaving that job. But I'm really thankful that for that experience in South Florida. In the book, you, you talked about how on paper, it looked like everything was together. You had a great job, you had a great relationship, but you didn't feel fulfilled your mentor that you just mentioned, is that someone you would talk to about, hey, should I 
try something else or what, what made you finally pull the plug on that? Oh, well, when I was in South Florida, what made me pull the, pull the plug was showing up at a Kinko's one day and getting a fax from my girlfriend at the time. And she broke up with me via fax, which is, can you imagine getting broken up via fax, <laughs> by the way, back in the day? So the that, guy at Kinko's knew about it before you. The guy at Kinko's knew about it before me. I think if you ever saw Boys in the Hood, remember when uh, Cuba Gooding Jr.'s character was punching at the air? After Ricky got killed, I think after I got that that fax from Kinko's, I was doing the same thing. I was so sad. But to your point, no, the mentor didn't tell me anything. The whole time I was down there, I mean, I was down there not to work. I was there because of a relationship. But early on, through some of my experiences, specifically at Disney Light, I was exposed to the entertainment industry. I was an attractions host at Disney during my internship at Epcot. I hosted this, this now far gone attraction called Honey, I Shrunk the Audience based on the movie, Honey, I Shrunk the Kids. And that's where I was a host at this attraction. I knew I had this interest in the television industry and entertainment, and I wanted to pursue that, but I decided not to, and I went to Florida instead. And when that relationship came to an end, I was like, I can stay here or I can take a risk and pursue some entertainment industry goals, try to get a job at Disney Orlando, got rejected from that. And I said, forget it, I can go to LA or I can go to New York. Didn't know anyone in either place. Decided to go to New York City. Had never been there before in my life. Arrived with less than $1,000 in my bank account and uh, to, pursue some, to pursue some TV dreams. And actually, I did know one person, one person that I studied abroad with in Spain. And that person was kind enough to give me a floor to sleep on in New York for a few months while I, I got, got on my feet. What was the plan? I'm going to go to MTV or you know one of these high-profile places and, and apply for hosting gigs? Or how, what were you thinking? That was absolutely it. I, I thought I'd go there and I'd apply for hosting gigs and I just try to get these jobs and for these major television industries, television industry jobs didn't work out that way right away. I mean, my first, what, six months, 11 months there, I primarily was working temp jobs at any office that would give me a temp job. Uh, I was fortunate enough that one of those temp jobs was at Viacom that owns Nickelodeon, MTV, the time I think Paramount and Comedy Central, et cetera. I was able to parlay that into opening a door at, at Nickelodeon. But I was just a fish out of water. I didn't know what to expect. I just straight up showed up. Man, there's a movie with Michael J. Fox, an old one called The Secret to My Success. When he shows mm -hmm. up in the, you remember that? Mm -hmm. He just shows up in the big city, like from Kansas or something like that. And that's who I was. And I was young. I was hungry. And I always knew in the back of my mind, like if it didn't work out, I could always go back home. Like I always knew there was a flight back home, but I knew that I the window wouldn't necessarily always be open to experience different things. So I was uh, excited to, to see what could happen in New York city. Yeah. You had the factory job waiting for you back home in case things didn't work out. I always had a factory job <laughs> waiting for me if I wanted it. I'm thank goodness. God bless that industry and the men and women that work in it like my dad, but it wasn't for the kid. How long did it take you to get the Nickelodeon hosting gig? I arrived in New York. I want to say in January, 2000. My first gig was, uh, was October 2002 is when I found myself on TV every single day for Nickelodeon. And prior to that, so you're aware, I did a good amount of commercial print modeling. I know you worked in the modeling industry as well for a while. So you know all mm -hmm. about those castings. And I was taking acting classes and commercial classes and landed like a, an agent that periodically would send me out for commercials. So I was getting some exposures here and there and I was taking acting classes. But it was a little over almost three years before... I landed that, that first big job on Nickelodeon. Would you describe yourself as confident at that time? And the second question is, why do you suppose they hired you for that hosting gig? 
was that confident? I had that that young 20-something New York City confidence. You know, I was like, hey, I'm a di- I probably more confident based. This is going to sound weird. I was probably more confident based on my looks. I was like, oh, I'm a decent looking guy. You can see me in some Verizon ads. People tell me I'm attractive and I should I should be on TV, which is which is horrible advice. Just because you're attractive doesn't mean you should be on TV. So there was a certain amount of confidence, but I think that was based on naivete. Remember, this is the real world era too. So I think you know you were influenced by all of that for folks who remember the real world, like the early versions of the real world. What landed the job at Nickelodeon, a lot of people don't know this. Uh, I didn't have an audition process for that. The show, You Pick Live, they had two main hosts. And I ended up getting hired to be a production assistant initially on that show. And initially I started showing up on the show here and there in random kind of bits here and there. And then that morphed into a larger role of me being a co-host, getting a talent contract and all of that. I did actually give them an audition from that. When I learned about the show, I gave them the audition DVD that I made that I have somewhere, but they went with two other people. But it morphed for me just showing up every now and then to being a day player on the show every single day, interacting with every major star you could think of. You Pick Live was filmed in the same building, 1515 Broadway, where they recorded TRL. So I can still remember back then, like I'd be going up to the 10th floor to uh, record Yupik Live and coming down the escalator would be our friend Caduce going down to record MTV's TRL. And t- we did, Caduce and I didn't know each other then. We knew each other. We just did the nod. <laughs> right. That's awesome. Were people recognizing you on the street? Did you have like instant fame? Like what, what was the lifestyle like at that point? Or were you not oh. getting paid anything? I wasn't, I was barely getting paid anything early on before I got the talent contract. You know, kids in the studio audience who saw us on TV every single day, like they saw, they saw us as stars, we'd sign autographs for them. New York City was very rare that you got noticed every now and then on the subway. I would get noticed my story at Queens neighborhood every now and then a kid would say, hey, that guy's on Nickelodeon. Where I really got noticed though was when I had long dreadlocks at the time, by the way. So it wasn't hard to, uh, to spot me. Where I really was noticed though was outside of New York City. So when we had tra- when we would travel to the show to Orlando, or I would go home to Michigan, or I'd be in some random place. That's when you get noticed at Walmart. That's when you get noticed at the grocery store or something like that. And let's be clear, the kid was trying to be noticed. There was a moment I'll never forget. I used to go to uh, Mets games with my buddies, and we used to love going to Mets games at Old Shea Stadium in Queens. And we get cheap tickets, and we go to the back and just drink beer and just have fun. And one day, a whole bunch of kids recognized me out of the blue at the Mets game. And the big camera came on me because I was sitting there signing autographs for a while <laughs> with everybody. That was one of those fun moments. Did you envision yourself like becoming a huge star and host and being in Hollywood one day? Like This is just the beginning of this, this amazing career. <laughs> you got to be smiling right now. Yeah, man. I thought my dreams were coming true. I mean, let's be clear. I didn't know it at the time, but what that job in TV mail was giving me was validation. I think in many ways I was seeking validation from different things from my upbringing, not having like kind of a, a, a real kind of steady kind of stable upbringing. I wanted to be validated. I wanted to be loved. I wanted to be appreciated. And for me, like somebody turning on their TV every single day at 5 PM and being able to see me was that. And yeah, your boy's ego got big. I was like, yo, there's nowhere I can't go. And I was, I was success was happening. Not only that, I was, my, I became the voice of Nickelodeon games and sports, another network. I was hosting pilots that different areas of Nickelodeon was producing. I landed a development deal for a live action television show I created 
with Nickelodeon. So things were happening like fast. None of that stuff <laughs> materialized, but things were happening, was happening fast. There was a contract, I guess, negotiation that came up in the summer of 2004. You took a stance. Yeah, it wasn't even so much a, a negotiation. The contract was coming to an end uh, and it was time to re-up on the show. And even a few months prior to this, I made the decision, I think the bad decision, again, on, on a good day, I was the fourth priority on the show. I was the like the four. I was not the, to be clear, I was not the reason people tuned in to You Pick Live, <laughs> but I wasn't happy with some contract stuff. And I decided to uh, not go on the show until the contract was resolved, even though they had told me, we're going to get this figured out. We're good. But I, for whatever reason, ego decided not to go on. It got resolved. I got back on the air. But summer 2004, we had a, hi- a hiatus every summer, which was cool because I'd get unemployment and just get to chill until we came back for the fall. And I remember going to the executive producer's office for a review to talk about the contracts, talk about my role for the upcoming season. And, and long, by that time, I'd become an associate producer and writer on the show as well. And the executive producer told me the words that just crushed me, basically, that we're not going to renew your contract. The show's going in a different direction and we're not bringing you back. And you talk about a, a gut punch, man. My whole identity, everything about me was tied into that show and being seen every single day. It broke my heart, man. And I was given the opportunity to stay on the show behind the scenes, but something told me that would feel awkward every single day showing up like and no longer existing in the role that I once did. So that came to an end. I essentially was fired. And I still remember riding the uh, the train back home from uh, Times Square, that the R train or the N train back to Queens. And I walk into my apartment and I remember <laughs> getting scissors. And I don't know if you remember that movie, Poetic Justice, when uh, Janet Jackson cut off all of her braids. I remember at that moment cutting off all of my dreadlocks, four or five years worth of growth. And I was like, all right, this chapter's over. And it was a cathartic moment, one of those ugly cries in the mirror. And a few weeks later, man, I decided to pack up, leave New York City behind and move to Los Angeles and see what would happen out, out west. Cut to you going into your closet in the mornings in your apartment. Light. I thought when I arrived in New York City that the city was going to be so happy to see me. I thought all the agencies and everyone would be so happy to to work with and hire this guy that pre- for the past two years had been on t- had been on TV every single day. Bro, nobody cared. They're like, oh, okay, Nickelodeon kids TV. Who cares? Your boy got super super depressed. And yeah, I began my day uh, with what I call the breakfast of champions. I would drink my, my cheap Paps Blue Ribbon beer, and I would smoke weed in my closet. And it was weird because I, I wanted to be engulfed in the smoke for some reason. I had this decent apartment in Silver Lake. This is before Silver Lake was cool in Los Angeles. I lived in this grimy little area. I just smoked weed every single day, just numbing and kind of just deadening myself and, and drinking beer. Not beer to the point where I was like hammered all day. And I, I don't want to tell you that I was like getting to a place where I was, friends would have been worried about me but I was doing anything not to feel. And I was like making money from unemployment and like doing focus groups, which was, which was wild to think. I went from making some good money in New York City, not Oprah money, but money where I could take my friends out and buy drinks and that kind of stuff to like being straight up broke. Slowly but surely started getting, getting active in the different communities in LA. I realized smoking weed and drinking beer every single day couldn't last forever. There still was something inside of me that wanted to create, that wanted to exist, that knew there was more out there. And I started getting involved in the improv community. Finally did land an agent 
finally started booking some commercials here and there. I still remember being in my first major commercial, one of those Mazda Zoom, Zoom, Zoom commercials. So I started meeting people and realized, okay, maybe I can do this comedy thing. Maybe I can be a TV actor. And around the same time on a lark, a former mentor of mine, you know, said, Hey, you know, while you're doing this, maybe you should consider pro- applying for, for graduate school and maybe journalism. And I'd never considered journalism or a graduate school. And he happened to be a graduate of Columbia university's graduate school of journalism. Mm-hmm. And again, just randomly, just to put my, give myself another option. I decided to apply to grad school and I got in, I mean, based on my credentials at Columbia university and I had the, one of the biggest decisions I had to make because I'd been in LA for less than a year but in that less than a year light, progress was starting to happen. The callbacks were happening for the commercials. I was getting known. Casting agents were wanting to bring me in regularly. The improv stuff was starting to happen. I started to work with some notable names. And then this opportunity came to like stay on this grind in L.A. Or go back to New York for graduate school. I chose graduate school at Columbia. How did you make that decision? That sounds like a very difficult decision to make. I don't know if I made the decision or if society made the decision or if people saying you don't turn down an Ivy League institution. You know, I think I was following some maybe some rules for myself, like this is an Ivy League institution. You should you should do this. Uh, Maybe I was afraid to lean fully into acting. I'm not 100 percent certain, but I I think I made the decision out of fear more than anything else. Uh, Columbia, which, you know, an esteemed institution, I think that was actually a safe choice for me. Again, I was safe in the classroom, but not knowing how this would end in LA as an actor, I didn't know. And I have people that I was in classes with and now I see on TV all the time. And and I'm like, you know, there's moments I'm like, what could have been? Speaking of that, you also told a story in your book about sitting with a television producer and watching tapes, audition tapes. And he had a very unconventional way of, of vetting people people's on-screen presence. Can you talk a little bit about that? Yeah. After I finished grad school at Columbia, for a brief spell, I became a local news reporter in the Bronx, in Soundview, the Bronx, (laughs) uh, for News 12, the Bronx. This is a very short spell because after my probationary period, I (laughs) I didn't get hired. I would commute every day from Park Slope all the way to the Bronx. Oh my goodness. It was a haul. One day I got to work early and the news director at the time was, like you said, reviewing reels of reporters that wanted to work at the station. And this is back when VHS tapes were still being used. And he would put in a VHS tape, like press play for a second, watch the reporter, then eject it. Put another VHS tape in for a second, press play, watch the reporter for a second, and then eject it. But what I realized as I was watching the reels with them was that the the volume was turned down on the television. So I stopped him and I asked him, I said, yo, how can you hire this man or woman to be a reporter if you can't hear what they're saying? And he said something that I will never forget. He said, I want to see if I want to turn the volume up, I want to see if I want to turn the volume up. And that has always stayed with me because yes, we've all had those moments at home where we're doing a million things and the TV happens to be on, but it grabs our attention that when we have to find the remote to turn the volume up or there are those moments when you're watching something on social media and you're scrolling through. And again, the audio is not automatically on and you have to tap to hear the audio, what this person is saying, knowing you've scrolled through a lot that you could have tapped on, but you didn't. But I think it's the same way in life. Every single day are are making a decision whether or not they want to turn the volume up on you to support you, to listen to you, to encourage you or press mute. And that's a decision that we have to make how we choose to show up every single day. 
And I'm going to do something that I don't do often, but I'm going to now cut to 2016 <laughs> because you moved back to Los Angeles. You ended up getting married. I came to your wedding. You had a couple of kids. And again, on paper, it looks like everything is going well. You're now a, a national speaker. You're executive coaching. You'd written two uh, books for college kids. And you're constantly touring around, and yet you find yourself in an alley in Santa Monica getting life coached by a homeless man. Yeah, holy moly. Well, I'm glad you skipped ahead. I mean, that's what's, what's crazy, by the way, man, is again, I think this goes to what you mentioned earlier of not really having like an upbringing where you saw a, a standard kind of path that I've had a lot of different chapters in this life, a lot of different books, if you will. Yes, 2016 on paper, everything was great. You Googled my name, like I was doing well in life. I had succeeded. But on paper doesn't tell the whole story. I like to remind people that Google never tells the whole story. And due to some, a lot of stress, anxiety, deep dissatisfaction, I'd become a secret cigarette smoker. And I, as you mentioned, I would find myself in alleys, not just in LA, but across the country when I was traveling, smoking cigarettes. But when I was home in L.A. smoking cigarettes, I wore this bright green gardening glove because my wife didn't know that I smoked and I didn't want her to smell it. And one day when I was smoking a, a cigarette in Santa Monica in an alley, <laughs> in an alley, I never wanted to smoke it in the open, by the way, because I have a lot of friends that live in Santa Monica. And I didn't my, my fear, grave fear would have been if I bumped into you. Like, what would Light think if he saw me smoking cigarettes or our friend Drew Pearlwood or someone else like that would have just killed me, interestingly enough, if you knew I was doing that. Smoking a cigarette one day in an alley with a bright green gardening glove. A homeless man comes up, asks to borrow a couple of cigarettes. I'm like, absolutely. Looked like dude has had many other better days. And we start talking, you know, like, like smokers do. And at some point, he asked me about the green glove. I tell him I'm, I wear it because my wife doesn't know that I smoke and I don't want her to smell it. Like, he looks at me like I committed a crime. Like, I did something wrong. And he says something I'll never forget. He says, hey, man you got to figure that shit out. Here is a man that I perceive to be homeless who has seen better days telling me who on the internet is successful that I got to figure my shit out. And by the time at that point, I'd gained like nearly 25, 30 pounds. I grew a big old beard to hide my weight gain, which it didn't. And I was just in a, in a, in a rabid deep funk. And the, 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 the net net of why I was in that deep funk is because in many ways I had stopped contributing to life. I, ha I had settled in many ways. That person I told you about who was a little bit bold and courageous to move to New York City with less than a thousand dollars in his bank account. That person who left to go to LA that moved to New York City after a 12 plus year career in the television industry had stopped being bold and lost a lot of the things that got him to where he was. I like to put it like this in sports. You know, I think teams can play to win or they can play not to lose. Mm -hmm. And I was playing not to lose. What I come to realize now, I think the reason why I reached that point in 2016, as I was entering this, this phase of about to be 40, I think it was, my manual for life had ran out, run out. As I mentioned to you, I don't know what a successful marriage, I didn't see, I've never saw what a successful marriage looked like. So here I am a year into marriage. We're going through therapy and counseling. It's just struggling. I never saw what a relationship was supposed to, a healthy relationship was supposed to look like. I mentioned to you, my parents were divorced, three divorces apiece. 
I never knew what it was like to have a quote unquote nuclear family, what it was like to sit, sit around a dinner table together as a family, to raise kids, to be a father, to be a dad. I didn't know. So I was figuring out in real time. And instead of reaching out for help to reach out and, and being embarrassed to tell you I'm going through this, which I should have told you and my other friends, I retreated and was alone because, again, I felt like at that point, my manual had come to an end and I didn't know what to do. I've talked to a lot of people on this podcast with some very dramatic stories. There was a woman I talked to recently who was a Rwandan genocide survivor and her whole family was basically killed off and she was raped and contracted HIV and just this really dramatic thing. Yet, I think when people hear stories like that, sometimes they can kind of think, oh, well, you know, thank God I'm, I'm not in that situation. But yet their day-to-day existence is very much them living on autopilot. And I think that what you're describing is so common, it's become our norm. So the idea to follow your heart or to live your passion and put structure at risk, which is something that you had been striving for your entire life, for the promise of something that is a little bit less structured, but and maybe even more esoteric in nature, is very, very difficult for people to do. And I feel like that moment in 2016, you know, your kids had been born premature. You talked about that. Your dad had dementia. And I think those two things open your eyes to a new type of existence. Can you talk a little bit about how that affected you and what you did next? Yeah, one of the kids being born at 32 weeks was one of those, you know, those scary moments, man. We, you know, twins very rarely go to full term, to be mm-hmm. clear, but still being born at 32 weeks, having to spend time in the in the NICU was scary, frankly. You know, you, you know, if anything, I, if there's anything I wanted to do in this life, man, and I don't think I've ever said this out loud, is I wanted to be a dad and I wanted mm-hmm. to get that right. And I wanted to be a husband and I wanted to get that right because I never saw work in front of me. And for so long, I wondered, like, is that just some illusion with those people who live across the street who go on vacations? We have the two car garage. Is that real? Is that shit real? Because that's all I ever wanted to do. That's all I wanted to be. And I found myself in a situation when it was, quote unquote, happening. But there were were struggles in the midst of it. And then, like, yeah, as you mentioned, my, my father got diagnosed with dementia. And today... You know, he lives uh, in a long-term care facility, can't talk, can't walk, which, which breaks my heart, uh, especially now that I have a book come out that was a, would have been a really big deal to him. And I know he's proud of me and he's always told, he always told me that. But even him not being there, I felt like when I needed him to get some of that advice or maybe even a, a stern talking to, uh, maybe him even as, as I was going through that tough time, 2016, saying, Tony, if you're going to do it, you got to do it. That, that, that option wasn't there. And I felt super, super alone, even though I was surrounded by, by so many people who did love me and who would have supported me. It's funny, man. I just wanted to get my, I felt this, like you said, there wasn't the structure. I became an entrepreneur as well. Like I left the structure to, of, of the nine to five to become a business owner when there was no guaranteed paycheck every two weeks. And I had a family and kids to, to, to provide for. I was doubting myself every single day. I was afraid in so many ways. And I had to numb how I was feeling. And that's what, that was the cigarettes. That was the, the glass of wine in the evening. That was the, uh, the Netflix, et cetera. I think I'd reached a point where I felt close, close to what I thought was going to be success. And it just, it felt fleeting or like I was going to lose, lose it all. Then what? 
And at that point, when you kind of realized that you were very much living on autopilot, how were you going to redefine success for yourself? Yeah, well, first I had to accept where I was and I had to accept where I was was based on the decisions that I made or had not made. A word a lot of people don't like to talk about, but if there's anything that I'm consistent about with my work is the word accountability. And uh, the fact that I'm, I've been willing to support other people as a coach, as a speaker over the years is, is ironic light that I wasn't taking my own advice in many regards. So first I had to accept where I was. I'd accept that it didn't suddenly happen and it didn't happen out of the blue. It happened based on the decisions again that I, that I did and did not make. But then I realized I couldn't do this alone. And that's when I started reaching out for support through therapy. I started working with a coach. I started confiding more in friends. I started thinking about the things that I did that got me to where I was that I had stopped doing, the way I had stretched myself, the way that I had had risked things. And I wanted to put my hands back on the wheel and back on the pedal. Again, I'd reached a point where I was settling as opposed to contributing. In real life, that meant not treating my business like it was a hobby, right? Like really, like not just going with the flow, letting jobs and leads come in, like treating it like it's, it's my business. This is my livelihood. This is how I provide for my family. That meant being willing to have uncomfortable conversations with my wife that I, I was avoiding, that all I needed to do is have a drink of alcohol, not to have that conversation. That meant leaning in and fully being present with the kids, even at the times like, I don't know what to do. I don't have, I've never learned how to be a dad, but just, just sometimes just knowing enough that I'm here is enough. It meant confronting my bad habits as it relates to the weight gain and showing up in the hospital, going through stress tests and taking cardiac MRIs because the stress levels were so high and asking myself, you know, is the food I'm putting in my body, is this going to fuel me or is this going to deplete me? Lastly, I'll just say there's a lot of different directions I can go on that, but also I think something that was stifled light was a creativity. I hadn't finished anything in a long time. I wasn't taking action on any of my ideas. There were so many brilliant, fun ideas that made me excited that were sitting on a notebook that were sitting on a hard drive, just gathering dust that I that wasn't moving, moving forward on. And to be clear, what's challenging about all of this is that when I was, I'm living in LA and I see my friends doing all these exceptional things, right? I'm seeing you start to shine with all this amazing success. I'm seeing other friends do these great things. And I'm just comparing myself to others. Like, what am I not, what am I not doing? But if anything, I saw y'all as inspiration and encouragement as opposed to something that would cause me to retreat into a deeper, darker funk. And you also alluded to the fact that you sort of redefined commitment to yourself as being recommitting. Yeah, because I think we talk so much about commitment and all that we do, whether it's our relationships and whether it's our work, whether it's our health, fitness, personal finances. What we don't talk enough about is recommitment because every single day we have to recommit to what's most important. It's easy to commit. But you have to recommit every single day. And that, that's the journey that I've been on. It's like every single day I wake up and I recommit to say what I say is most important. Funny enough, you know, leading up to the book coming out, I found myself super stressed out. I found myself with a lot of anxiety. I found myself getting a lot of, uh, a lot of heartburn. And I was telling a friend about this and he said something really funny. He said, hey, let me ask you a question. When you were daydreaming about having your book published with the major publishing house, did you also daydream about getting heartburn? Did you also daydream about being super stressed out? And I was like, no, I did not. I heard someone say a few years back, you know, if you don't have fun, it doesn't count. 
And there you go. The joy had left me, man. Like there was, there was no joy. And so even, even committing to being joyful has been a major decision for me, even most recently with the book coming out. I, I like, I was like, no, man, I got to have fun with this. I, I can't get myself all stressed and then tied into a knot over what's supposed to be a very enjoyable, awesome time. Talk about that process a little bit of, of getting a book published. I mean, you, you have this, this realization, it takes a couple of years to get a book out from the moment you first have the idea, then you got to write a proposal, then you got to get an agent, you got to have them shop the proposal. Did all that come easily for you or what were the snags in that process? One, I have to remind myself, remind others that prior to ever getting a book deal, like I self-published three different books and you know what it's like to self-publish as well. And I'm a firm believer like that if I didn't self-publish those books on my own, if I didn't invest in myself, if you will, this never would have happened. 100%. I feel the it, same way. Yeah. It never would have happened. Uh, I, I wrote a full 55,000 word book. It's like one of those narrative leadership books that has characters and all that kind of stuff that I took to some publishers and it got rejected by everyone early on. I think because I was trying to write like someone else. But then when I got honest, and I decided to get real and came up you know, with the theme of what Stop Living on Autopilot is and wrote that proposal. And it got more raw. It got more real. Uh, even though we were rejected by a decent amount of publishing houses, my, my agent and I, and I was fortunate enough to, I, the crazy thing is I have so many friends who are like published authors, which is so incredible. And all of them were kind enough to in some shape or form introduce me to people. But my, when we took my proposal out initially, the book was called Eat More Pancakes, which has nothing to do with nothing. Don't even ask <laughs> it's like, it was me. It has nothing to do with nothing. It was about joy because it was about joy because I realized at some point, even though I make my kids pancakes every Sunday for breakfast, I never had them. Like I mm. never allowed myself to enjoy them. So the thing was kind of, we got to eat more pancakes in life. Come on, enjoy yourself. It got rejected for a lot of great reasons. But then when I re- retooled that and got this made up to stop living on autopilot proposal, which initially was called the best thing, which is the name of my podcast, we got a lot of interest. And we're rejected by a lot of people, but finally found a publishing house, Rodale Books, that that believed in the book and believed in me. I think not just this book, but future books as well. And writing the book was was really, really challenging because I the first few versions of it were really clean. It was really, really pretty. It was really, really safe. There was not a lot of me in there. Uh, there was not a lot of my personal anecdotes and experiences that in the book lead to the the main lessons and themes that I'm teaching. And as you mentioned, you know, I submitted the book like a, you know, you send a book and like it doesn't come out for a year. That's the weirdest thing. Like you see, you work so hard on a book, then it doesn't come out like for a year. And you're like, do I still want to even talk about this? Like I'm done with this thing. But you said something we did an IG live not long ago. And you said something that really, really stood out to me that I, I talked to my wife about and I've been thinking about is, you know, in many ways, this book is written for a younger version of me, I think. That person that needed a guide. That person that needed a manual who did not have one, in many ways, I wrote it for me. I always tell people, if you see me post anything on social media, that's for me first. If it connects for you, congratulations, great. But let's be clear, that's something that I'm dealing with or have dealt with. So the book is a testament to that for sure. I normally wrap these conversations up. I ask the guest, how do they define success now? So I'll ask you that. And then I also ask if they could go back and, and give their 19-year-old self some advice, what would it be? And I feel like your book, Stop Living on Autopilot, is that manual. It is the thing that you you wish that you had had at 19 years old to help you navigate 
what it is really like to be in a, in the adult world. So talk to me about how you look at success these days compared to before. Success these days, well, in the past, success was all about external markers. It was what my title was in my career. It was what was the bank account, how much money I was making. It was the number of followers, what other people thought about me. Success these days is, is the exact opposite. It's how I'm feeling internally, being able to go to bed every single night light, knowing that I quote unquote earned my sleep, that I showed up for the things that I committed for my family, for my creative endeavors, et cetera. Like I want to feel like I earned my sleep every single day. And there are days in the past when I didn't feel like it because I know I left something out there, whether that was a conversation that needed to happen, whether that was some love that needed to be shown, whether it was my phone not being between my kids and I for such a long period when all they're trying to do is hang out and play with me. So earning my sleep and feeling good about the day is how I I look at success now. I want to add something to that from your book. You talked about taking chances, and I feel like the people who can take more chances tend to be more fulfilled in life. And you said that it's not about what people think of you if you do take the chance. It's about what you think of you if you don't take a chance. 100%. That's the only reason like, that the Best Thing podcast exists right now. I tried to find sponsors for so long before I ever started that podcast. I needed that, still needed that external validation a while back. But being willing to be the, me being the sponsor of that bad boy, that I would think so horribly of myself right now if I didn't hit publish and record every single week. It is so fulfilling and it is so much fun to do, as you know, with your own podcast. Yeah. And, and I feel like your approach doesn't have that big, we compared it to, to football when we talked about it before, the explosive play, the big idea, the all you have to do is this one thing and your life will improve dramatically and exponentially. It's more like, yeah, you have to do these hundred things and you have to recommit to them every day. And it's very much, you know, block to block, yard to yard, you know, it's happening. The the, the wind happens at the line of scrimmage <laughs> and that needs to become your process. It's doing the unsexy. It's, it's doing the unglamorous. It's being willing to do the work when no one is watching. Since we're talking about football, just briefly, I, whenever I talk to football teams, I remind them that the average football play lasts like six seconds. That's it. You know, they, the, the average football play lasts like six seconds. So we got to give it our all for those six seconds. And we also have to, have to remind people, man, that life is, is the average Tuesday. When not much happens. Life is the average Tuesday when not much happens. It's not the day you get married, not the day you have kids, not the day you get the brand new job, not the day of the anniversary, not the day you have a best-selling book. It's the day that not much happens. And how we show up on that day that not much happens determines whether or not people are going to want to turn the volume up on us or not. I heard another football coach, Bear Bryant, who was like the, one of the winningest coaches in history until Nick Saban uh, just surpassed him this past year with Alabama. He said, it's not about having the will to win. He said, everybody has the will to win. Success is really about having the will to practice to win. Right? Oh because for those, for those six seconds, 
how many hours of drills and practice goes in to being able to to execute your job for those six seconds. Oh my goodness, that's real. Now you now since we on sports, I got to say it because I don't live far from UCLA. It reminds me that John Wooden, the former you know the Hall of Fame UCLA basketball coach, they always said his very first practice uh, before the, they got a basketball in their hands, he would teach them how to properly put on their socks and tie mm-hmm. their shoes, right? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So they wouldn't get blisters, but they, the, the basics. Oh man, that Bear Bryant one is real. The will to practice. That's some real, yeah. I love that, man. What's next for you? You got the book out. It seems like you got the family dynamic on track. What's next? What's next is first, I, you had me thinking about that, what I would tell my 19-year-old self. I, that's been in my brain for a second. Mm-hmm. And what I would tell that 19-year-old self is that your success and your happiness hurts no one. I think that's just a reminder that I remind everyone on this who's listening is that your success and your happiness hinders absolutely no one. I think for some time I, I did think that if I shined or things went well, that somehow somehow it hurt someone, but it doesn't. In terms of what's next is I want to enjoy this journey of the book coming out and all the talks that are going to to come with it. This year has caused me in a way to truly lean into my family in a way I never would have if there wasn't a pandemic because I'd be traveling nonstop and kind of just on the road and, and kind of here, but I've had to really lean into it. But what, what's next is, is just recommitting every single day. I don't know what that next book is, but I'm committed to having joy and, and hitting record on projects more this year than ever before. The Facebook lives, the Instagram lives, and just connecting with amazing people because that that brings me joy is going to be a conduit of creativity for me moving forward. Beautiful. Well, I like to finish these conversations up by looping back around to how we opened up with the childhood favorite activity (laughs) and uh, yours being sports in relationship to what we just talked about with sports, which is, which is practice, the, the importance of the practice and really the importance of process, because I feel like a lot of times when we are not fulfilled in life, it's because we're living a sort of outcome-oriented life. We're living from holiday to holiday to big, splashy moments, but then we're kind of losing ourselves in those in-between moments or looking at the in-between moments as throwaway moments. And right now, your life is very much about reminding us to be process-oriented as opposed to being outcome-oriented. And that's really the only way, even according to a Nick Saban, it's the only way you're going to win is if you are bought into the process. In fact, his whole approach is called the process. And he's known for that process approach to winning. He says, look, just do your job with give it everything you have. Don't even look at the score. If you just do your job and if you hold yourself accountable to your teammates, then you don't even have to look at the score you're going to win at the end. And so just grateful to you for putting this manifesto together (laughs) to help us stop living on autopilot. I'm I'm grateful to have you as a friend and we've gotten a chance to go on some hikes and, and stuff and, and share, you know, deeply personal things about life. And it's always good to have somebody like that. And so I, I definitely regard you as, as one of those friends in my life who I feel like I can tell anything to. And, and that's only the case because I know you've gone through everything, right? <laughs> and so you meet that with humility and you always have some wise words to share back. So I appreciate you. And I want everybody who hears this to go and grab your book 
stop living on autopilot and also to listen to your podcast, The Best Thing, which is such a cool concept. You basically have people come on and I've been on your show and tell a story about the best thing that has happened that most people don't know about that person. Well, I appreciate you. This is a joy coming on. I love the podcast. And I, I like spending time with you because it's funny when we hang out, man, even though it may not be always often, depending, depending upon where you are in the world, there's like, I feel like we have a, this shorthand that exists. It's like if we weren't raised together, but I feel like we've probably had enough similar experiences over the course of life when you're that person that somebody can say something or do something where I hear something. And all I have to do is look at you. <laughs> <laughs> and we can smile and the whole conversation happens without nothing being said. And there are so few people in my life that all I need to do is look at them and a whole conversation happens. So that, that brings me a lot of joy that to know that I have that with you, man. Love it. Well, thanks brother. Look forward to crossing paths again soon. You got it. Thank you for listening to this conversation with Antonio Neves. You can follow Antonio on social media at the Antonio Neves, which is spelled T H E. A-N-T-O-N-I-O-N-E-V-E-S. And make sure to check out his book, Stop Living on Autopilot, Take Responsibility for Your Life, and Rediscover a Bolder, Happier You. If you feel inspired by Antonio's story, I'd really appreciate it if you could take just 10 seconds to rate this podcast. All you do is look down at your screen, click where it says, at the end of the tunnel, which is in purple, And if you don't know what the hell I'm talking about, it's probably because you're listening to this on another platform. So if you just look for a button that says listen on Apple Podcasts and click that button, that'll take you to the Apple Podcast feed where you can scroll down past all of my previous episodes to where it says ratings and reviews and just tap the star all the way on the right and you left a rating. And if you want to leave a review, tap where it says leave a review. Thank you so much. I really appreciate you. You can also get the show notes and a transcript of my interview with Antonio at lightwatkins.com slash tunnel. And while you're there, make sure to sign up for my daily dose of inspiration email, which is a short and sweet daily motivational message that I've been sending out every morning for years. It's even been turned into a book called Knowing Where to Look, 108 Daily Doses of Inspiration, which is out in May 2021. Thanks again for listening to the podcast and for sharing this with your friends and your followers. I'll see you back here next week with another amazing story from the end of the tunnel. And in the meantime, keep trusting your intuition and following your heart. Peace and love. You want to get a little extra nudge when it comes to following your heart and taking leaps of faith and believing in yourself each day, then you want to sign up for my free daily dose of inspiration email. You'll join 30,000 other subscribers who receive a short inspirational story or anecdote that's meant to inspire you to become the best version of yourself each day. You can sign up at lightwatkins.com and you'll get your first inspirational message as early as tomorrow. Again, Just go to lightwatkins.com. You can sign up for free and you'll wake up each morning inspired to be the best version of yourself.